Welcome, lovers, brothers, sisters, werewolves, people who have a lien against their house in the state of Ohio. Welcome to the No One Is Competent podcast, the show about how everyone in power is bad at their jobs, and also a show about what my brain goes to when I have to randomly think of something. I am Azalea, joined, of course, by my illustrious co-host, Jay. If you want to reach us, we are on Twitter, at Azalea Wyatt and at Harry's 48 respectively. Those will be in the description. If you want to contact the podcast in general, you can do that at nobodyscompetent at gmail.com. I checked that on the daily. Our music is done by the legendary, and might I say, very principled, Sam Bryce. And today, we are talking about a thing that no one has ever heard of, except for Jay, and I assume the, like, five dudes who wrote the books he used as sources for this episode. I'ma be real with y'all. When Jay just, like, there are several types of episodes here at the, you know, No One Is Competent HQ. In, in our um, secret underwater fortress, uh, deep in the Marianas Trench. There are episodes where, like, I have just become obsessed with some niche topic, and I'm just burning to go on an autistic rant that will inevitably just allow me to heap self-hatred onto my brain. There's, you know covering the standard political scandals or military foibles that we think are going to get the clicks and the views so you puny little pigs will appreciate will pay attention to us i'm sorry i mean you're you're very beautiful and i and i i really want you i really want you to please please be here i it's 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 good it's i please i i want you to stay anyway but then there are episodes where jay is just like we're gonna do this and i'm like okay and this is definitely one of those episodes. What the fuck are we talking about today, Jay? Right. So the subject of today's episode is the British invasion of the River Plate, which was an attempt by the British Empire during the Napoleonic Wars to conquer the area around the River Plate estuary, which today is a part of Argentina and Uruguay. And I assume they failed because they didn't bring enough utensils. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... A bit of a different meaning for plate, but we'll get into that later. Okay, so yes, this is just a classic example of a thing took place in a part of the world that we are told doesn't matter, and thus we've never heard of it. Yeah, it's this is actually a very big deal in that part of the world. I mean, this is a major moment in Argentine history um, that is celebrated to this day. And everywhere else, nobody knows about it. (laughs) I don't even remember how I learned about this. I think it was just clicking on random things on Wikipedia or something like that. Um, it's yeah. it's terrifying, isn't it? Just like how much of history isn't lost. Like it's there. It's just so many people in the West just do not give a shit. Yeah. You're just never, it's never put up across your, um, across your brow. Like, like you just never come across it because it's just discarded like you know how much awesome shit went down in laos or ethiopia or like fuck the the wildlands of alaska that we just don't (laughs) fucking know about yeah uh it's it's kind of shattering to think about it. It's the incompetence of our society. But what are the sources for today's episode? So the sources are The British Invasion of the River Plate, 1806 to 1807 by Ben Hughes, Bad Day for the Empire by Richard Gaunt for The Guardian, and The British Invasion of the River Plate by Digital History. I realize that we have not, uh, because I wanted to just vibe and I didn't type out the intro of the podcast, I forgot to ask uh, how you're doing. Um, I know that uh, listeners may know that we delayed this week's, uh, we pushed back a week because uh, 
I believe you came down with Havana syndrome, right? <laughs> Not quite. I, I did have a kind of recurring migraine throughout much of the week. But, um... Yeah, yeah. You live in D.C. and like <laughs> the Briti- the Russian uh, embassy just like cranked up the sonic gun and you were just like caught in the crossfire. Like surely that's suppose, the yeah, most reasonable logical explanation literally the only possible explanation for for any the sort only of, uh... possible yeah. explanation for a dude in a tropical climate yeah. who's probably not hydrating properly getting a headache yeah oh god i i love havana syndrome i love it because like it's it's a perfect i'm sure there are I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of idiots at the CIA, but I'm sure there's plenty of people with like who are you know objectively intelligent. But it's it's a great example of just how like the way like the way you think can make you stupid, and like institutional beliefs and paranoias can just render you absolutely blind. Yeah, I mean, I think it's telling how like now. Nobody ever talks about Havana syndrome because, like, it wasn't really a thing. <laughs> there's there's a bunch of people listening to this who have no idea what I'm talking about or are very confused. Mm, and, uh, you know what? Fuck them. Uh, th- th- the podcast hasn't properly started yet. We ain't educating you on shit. All right. Uh, the, the podcast starts properly now. What, what, what year, where are we? When are we? What's, what's going on? Where is the river plate? So we'll be, uh, jumping around a little bit in terms of time in order to set this up. But to those who have been following along with our series on the Napoleonic Wars, uh, we'll know that we most recently covered the War of the Fourth Coalition, which ends in 1807. Oh god! Wait, wait. Does this play into the Napoleonic shit? You, you. Yes. T- this was supposed to be a week off. You. What? No. It's all about Napoleon. Everything is about Napoleon. All roads lead. All right, all right. But at least this is about like the British getting like really embarrassed, right? Because, because honestly, yeah. <laughs> I've been kind of edging on that. Because like the British have been kind of like like their friends have been fucking up in the series, and I I need a. Yeah. I, I need a good uh, British L uh, as 4th of July approaches. Yeah. So, yeah, so the War of the Fourth Coalition finishes in 1807, but we actually have to step back a few years to do the whole background of what we're going to be talking about. Now, to say that things weren't exactly going to plan for the British in the early 1800s would be an understatement. In spite of their best efforts, the power of revolutionary and then Napoleonic France seemed to only rise with each passing year. And this was coming after an even longer period of diplomatic and military failings that cast doubts over the strength of the empire and its institutions. AK, we got our fucking independence, lick my dick! (laughs) Yeah, back in the 1780s, the British had been defeated during the American Revolution. We just did a podcast partially about that. Um, And the... A decade later, during the War of the First Coalition, the British are beat at Toulon, and they're pushed down to the Low Countries. Now, the Prime Minister William Pitt responded by launching a series of military expeditions against the French holdings in the Caribbean. Uh, These were called the Great Push. Now, the British did manage to capture some ports and islands, but their attempt to conquer the colony of Saint-Domingue resulted in both defeat and the near-total destruction of the army, by yellow fever and other lovely tropical diseases. Which we have also covered. Yeah. Of course, the British still had some things going for them. You know, their navy was still the best in the world, and they had a very strong economy. While they could not defeat Napoleon on land, British financiers hoped to fund France's enemies in their attempts to do so, while British ships marauded throughout the Atlantic and Indian Oceans. The strength of these forces and their influence over British decision-making process would lead to new plans for more military expeditions. So the British Empire of the early 1800s was in a bit of a transitory period. From the late 16th century to the late 18th, the British had 
focused primarily on North America and the Caribbean. The loss of the 13 colonies coincided with and reinforced a reorientation away from this part of the world and towards other areas of opportunity. Um, by the way, if you're not fully aware why uh, North and South America were so heavily colonized by the Europeans and why, say, you know, close to nearby Africa or, or even Asia uh, weren't, uh, is because it was hard. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like if, if in, in the 1500s, if you were a, a European and you went to Africa, if you were lucky, your horses would get sick and die, and then you would get sick and die, <laughs> instead of you just getting sick and dying first. Never mind the fact the people there are really good at fighting, and also you can't get your ships up the rivers, and it's just a fucking mess. Yeah. They took, uh, the, the battle was waged over the Americas because that was um, the land that was easy to take. So now we kind of got to go to uh, other theaters. Now by 1803, the Empire controlled much of Canada, scattered holdings throughout the Caribbean, a few ports and islands off of Africa and South Asia, and about half of Australia. Additionally, under around a quarter of India had fallen under the direct and indirect rule of the British East India Company. This was a large empire, but still a long way off from the size it would eventually reach by the end of the century. The gap between the wars of the Second and Third Coalitions had left Britain as the only major power still at war with France and her allies. These allies included Spain and the Netherlands, the latter of which was ruled by a puppet government set up by the French in 1795. While France had lost much of her empire, the Spanish and Dutch still had substantial overseas holdings for the British to target. The British government thus decided to target those overseas empires. By doing so, they hoped to both disrupt French trade and open up new markets for British commerce. The commercial benefits of this aptly named Blue Water strategy were of particular importance since they were crucial in securing the support of British financiers, who in turn were necessary in funding Britain's ongoing attempts to organize new coalitions against Napoleon. Any operation launched as part of this strategy would thus have to have a clear commercial purpose. You could argue it's still like this, but this is a time in history where it it, it was it was really gangbanging. Like yeah. Going after the money and going after the land were the exact same thing and had to be the exact same thing. The system didn't really know how to operate otherwise. Yeah. Now, one particularly tempting target for the British was the region of the Rio de la Plata in South America. The River Plate, as it's known in English, is a large estuary formed where the Uruguay and Parana rivers converge and empty into the Atlantic Ocean. If you don't know what the River Plate looks like and you're not watching on YouTube, you know, just pull up a map of South America. You'll see it between Argentina and Uruguay. It's called a river. That's a bit misleading. It's a very wide, basically a bay. Um, it's a little bit like Chesapeake Bay in that, you know, you have this river opening up into the ocean and becoming very wide in the process. So Yeah, and, you know, it's like, oh, it's so inviting. It looks like I can sail right into that river-slash-bay thing. And, uh, yeah, the, the Amazon River is weird. Like, it pumps out so much water that you can put your bucket in, like, a league offshore and pull out fresh water. It's, it's weird. But, yeah, it's a massive—it is essentially a bay— where a bunch of rivers combine to spill out into the Atlantic Ocean, and thus you can go up and you can get access to all those rivers, and maybe you could go and conquer a bunch of shit. Yeah, indeed. Now, today, the river plate lies between Argentina to the south and Uruguay to the north, as I just mentioned, and the capital cities of both countries, Buenos Aires and Montevideo, respectively, are located along its shores. In the early 1800s, the entire region as well as the bulk of what is now Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, and Bolivia, were a part of a vast Spanish holding known as the Viceroyalty of the River Plate. So this story is going to take place before the great Spanish, uh, the great wars of uh, independence against Spain. Yes, indeed. 
and they'll actually play a factor in their eventual outbreak. I did not. I do. I I know a, a decent amount about the revolutions against Spain. I do not know a ton about like the immediate befores. This yeah. is going to be weird. Yeah. Now, the importance of the Rio de la Plata is reflected in the meaning of its name, which translates as River of Silver. Plate is actually a mistranslation. We don't mean dinner plates. It's just some English dudes mistranslated plata, which means silver. But yeah. Silver Whoa. mind. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. Yes. <laughs> they mistranslated Spanish? This thing really should just be called the Silver River or the River of Silver, but it is known as the River Plate, so that's what we're going to be calling it. Because be, because Gerald in 1712 fucked up. Yeah, basically. God bless England. <laughs> yeah. So silver mined in the highlands of Bolivia and Peru would make its way down by those rivers to the capital city of Buenos Aires, where it could then be loaded onto ships for transport across the Atlantic. That being said, the value of the river plate did not lie just in its silver. The region was home to a burgeoning colonial population, which made it a tempting market for British exports. These exports could not make it into the voice of Viceroyalty due to Spain's protectionist policies, though. Basically, Spanish businesses had a monopoly in the area. Now, plans for an operation to conquer the area were created back in the 1790s when the war broke out with Spain, but they had remained on the back burner as British forces were diverted elsewhere. Now, with the fighting on the continent ending, entering a period of dormancy, interest in the River Plate emerged once again. All that being said, the River Plate was not the only potential target for an overseas military operation. Another highly tempting one lay on the opposite side of the South Atlantic, in the form of the Cape of Good Hope. Located at the southern tip of Africa, the Cape had been ruled by the Dutch since the 1650s. Unlike the River Plate, the importance of the Cape Colony came not through any sort of mineral wealth. You know, diamonds and Elon Musk's emeralds would not be discovered in South Africa until the 1860s, but its strategic location. The Cape was a vital stopping point for European ships making the long trip around Africa en route to the Indian Ocean. Given the British East India Company's rule and India was expanding rapid pace, control over the Cape was seen as a necessity. The Dutch Cape Colony had several advantages over the Viceroyalty of the Plate as a prospect for a British invasion. Not only was it far smaller, but the British had actually already captured it once, back in 1795, before giving it back to the Dutch in the Treaty of Amiens. The vast Viceroyalty... The vast... The vast Viceroyalty... The vast... Vi fuck you. The vast Viceroyalty consisted of territory largely unknown to the British and required far more men and resources to subdue. In 1805, Prime Minister Pitt made his decision. The target of British forces would be Cape Colony, not the River Plate. Jay, why do we have a, a side mission in the story? Because <laughs> it'll be important. <laughs> Trust me. All right, it better. So the British invasion fleet set sail from Cork in late August 1805. And this fleet is made up of around 75 ships. I say around because, like, ships will join and leave en route. Um, seven of these are Royal Navy warships, and the rest of the armada is mostly transports who are carrying the supplies and approximately 6,000 soldiers allocated for the invasion force. They initially keep the destination of this fleet a secret from like the common sailors, but pretty much everybody figured out where they were going because 14 of the ships belonged to the East India Company. So people put two and two together and figured out they're probably going for the Cape of Good Hope. In command of this fleet was Commodore Home Riggs Popham. Born in 1762 as the child of a British diplomat, Popham joined the Navy during the American Revolution seeing some limited service during that conflict. Popham was an energetic and charismatic officer, traits that earned him both multiple promotions and eventually even a seat in Parliament. 
His personality also won the attention of William Pitt, who would go on to serve as his main patron in Parliament. And we talked last episode about how it was common at the time these days for uh, high-ranking officers to also be Parliament members. Yeah. And William Pitt is like a guy who we've mentioned a lot because he's prime minister for a long period of time in this time period, kind of like on and off. So we can cut this, Jay, but I was actually kind of planning to ask you, like, what's the over-under on how good he was a ruler at, like, the end of this? I don't know if you, like, crammed it in, because that is a name I've heard a lot, and I keep hearing it with, with you know, eating L's, so, like... <laughs> We've... I, so I don't have much about him, because he won't actually die <laughs> um, for unrelated reasons during the events we're talking about. Uh he is seen today as generally a pretty good prime minister domestically. Um, he eats a lot of L's in terms of foreign policy. He kind of has the misfortune of being in charge during these coalition wars, um, the early ones, and they do not go well for Britain. So if you look at his foreign policy, you would say, yeah, he uh, he messes up a lot. Um, his domestic policy was generally seen as pretty good. But he was in office for more than 49 days. Oh, yeah. He's like the second longest serving prime minister in their history. He, he's around for ages. So back in 1798, Popham had planned and led an amphibious raid against the Dutch harbor of Ostend. During this raid, the British were able to successfully destroy several Dutch gunboats and damage a bunch of canals. But the landing force of over a thousand men was ultimately captured by the French because bad weather prevented them from being supported by the fleet. Still, though, the raid in Ostend was seen as a success by the Admiralty. This was back when the British were really scared of an invasion, so like any win that prevented an invasion from happening was, was taken. Popham saw further action during the French Revolutionary Wars, primarily fighting the French in the Mediterranean. During these years, he also formulated a new signal flag code that proved to be highly successful. In 1803, Pompum was one of the key figures advocating for invasion of the River Plate. While these plans were turned down as being unrealistic, he was instead chosen to take part in the attack on the Cape. While Popham controlled the fleet, the roughly 6,000 soldiers were under the command of Army General David Baird. A stern disciplinarian, Baird was a veteran of several campaigns in India and had won a degree of fame by successfully marching an army over 300 miles through the deserts of Egypt to participate in the attacks on French-held Cairo and Alexandria during the War of the Second Coalition. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's that, that sounds hard. While he was not particularly well-liked by his men because people... Uh, commanding officers who will brutally drive their soldiers 300 miles through a desert are rarely liked by their men. Uh, he was respected. I'm just going to go ahead and use context clues for that one. Yeah, then, then, no, that's pretty accurate. By November of 1805, the fleet had made it across the Atlantic to take on supplies in Salvador, Brazil. And on the 4th of January the following year, the British reached the Cape of Good Hope. The Dutch colony, if you're wondering why you, like, go, like, zigzag across the Atlantic, uh, it, it currents and winds and the age of sail was hard, okay? Yeah. Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so they arrive at the Cape of Good Hope. Now, the Dutch colony is defended by around 2,000 soldiers under General Jan Wilhelm Janssens. Jan Fuck it. Janssens knew that he had little chance of holding the colony against a British army that was over twice the size of his own, but refused to surrender without a fight due to a sense of national honor. Oh, that's great. After a series of small battles and skirmishes, he finally agreed to surrender to the British on January the 10th. So he spent, like, half a week getting some of his men killed so he could feel better and... Yeah. With his capitulation, the British had total control over the Cape Colony, marking the start of a century and a half of British rule in South Africa, which would, of course, go smashingly. The British invasion of the Cape Colony had been a clear success. They had suffered fairly minimal casualties, 51 dead, 189 wounded, captured a crucial waypoint linking Britain to India. 
Popham's orders were to garrison the colony, send a bulk of the soldiers on to support campaigns in India, and return any unneeded vessels to Britain. All remaining forces were to remain in the Cape to defend it from a potential French reprisal. However, as the fleet made its preparations to split apart, Popham decided on a different course of action. In his mind, he had all at his disposal, all the ships necessary, to launch his old plan. An invasion of the river play- Oh, fuck yes! <laughs> Mission creep! <laughs> oh, our old favorite friend, Mission Creep. Oh, Jay, you didn't tell me Mission Creep would show up in this one. I forgot that you oh. were a, a, a big Mission Creep fan. Ah, oh, I, I do appreciate the present. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, the flaw of the boys back in, in London was trusting this idiot. <laughs> Yeah. Like, like, so many of our stories just open with, like, some privileged dude who's, like, won a few battles against vastly inferior enemies going, well, how hard could it be? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Or, um, well, how difficult could it possibly be? Not bad. Yeah. So back in 1803, Popham had been won over to the idea of conquering the River Plate by Francisco de Miranda, an exiled Venezuelan revolutionary who convinced Popham that the population of South America would gladly rise up and join the British in overthrowing their Spanish rulers. Ah, yes. The classic returning guest to the Known as Competent podcast, we will be greeted as liberators. I missed him. I really did. This idea had gained a following among several British officers, leading to such claims as, quote, The inhabitants of the River Plate only wait an attack to fly to the assistance of the invader. Outlandish estimates included the idea that Montevideo could be taken with just three ships, and that 10,000 men would be sufficient to conquer the whole continent of South America. Como? What? All right, well, all right, okay, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. Um, square footage of South <laughs> America. Okay, so, um, so, so that means that um each man is holding down like about uh 68,000 miles <laughs> sounds reasonable by their lobes yeah sounds sounds reasonable so these ideas get dismissed <laughs> by the british government for pretty obvious reasons <laughs> but Popham's... by the way i'm sorry to delay the podcast forever but I, okay the name Francisco de Miranda is like burning in my brain. I know I've learned about this guy somewhere. I, it, he's a character, right? Yeah, like, um, he's a guy. Have, yeah, he'll he'll have a pretty interesting history. He's like one of the early revolutionaries in South America. Um, he's like a little bit ahead of his time. Um, but I'm I'm not surprised that he's the one um spinning the yarn. Yeah, he's later like a dictator in Venezuela very briefly. Um, he ends up, I think, fighting uh, uh, Simone Bolivar. And yeah, he's uh, kind of involved with that stuff. So yeah, the British government says basically these ideas are stupid. But Popham still remained convinced that only a small force was necessary to establish control over the river plot and its surrounding regions. His belief was reinforced by news of the French and Spanish naval defeat at Trafalgar, and by reports from British merchants who told him that the people of Buenos Aires, which is the capital of the Viceroyalty and the most important city on the river, would support British rule if the British allowed for free trade in and out of the colony. Remember, the Spanish basically are, are protectionists. They're like, you can only trade to Spain. Um, Whereas the British, of course, are famous in this yeah. period for their free trade policies. I mean, they'll let you trade with other countries. They'll just also put like a massive tariff on it. <laughs> so yeah. Now, of course, even in the most optimistic of scenarios, at least some soldiers would be necessary to garrison the area. 
which meant that Popham had to convince General Baird to support his plan. Baird was reluctant, preferring to wait for further orders from Britain before doing anything. Popham's persuasion was ultimately able to win over the general, though, and he agrees to lend him a regiment of 950 men and four cannons under General William Beresford in exchange for one-fourth of all the plunder that was to be acquired during the campaign. Do they still think that, like, there's, like, gold and silver just, like, spilling out of the trees in South America at this point? Or I think they've got past the idea that it's spilling out of the trees. But that being said, like, Bolivia is, like, the biggest silver mine on Earth at this point in time. Um, so there is a lot of silver going through the area. Um, All right, fair enough. <laughs> so... The first invasion of the River Plate. Ah. In the novel business, we call that foreshadowing. <laughs> On April the 4th, 1806, Commodore Popham dispatched the frigate HMS Lita from Cape Town on a mission to gather intelligence on the strength of Spanish positions in the River Plate. Can we just call it the Rio de la Plata? Like, whatever. If you want to, sure. Ten days later, the main invasion fleet, consisting of five warships and five transports, followed suit. Just prior to leaving the Cape, Popham sent a letter to the Admiralty in England explaining that he was undertaking this unsanctioned expedition for the sake of the country. I mean, he is a, a, a naval officer, so, you know, they, they, they are the ones who coined the old uh, ask for forgiveness, not permission quote. Popham, that's real, you can look it up. Popham's fleet reached the island of St. Helena in April 30th. Uh, St. Helena was at the time under the control of the East India Company. The island's governor gladly gave his support for Popham's mission and lent him a fervor three ships, two cannons, and 150 company soldiers. All we do is win. The HMS Lido reached the coast of South America by the end of May, sighting the fort of Santa Teresa north of the Rio de la Plata on the 20th of the month. Lido's commanding officer, Captain Honeyman, hell yeah, Captain Honeyman sent five members of the ship's crew on a boat into the bay near Santa Teresa to sound its depth. Jay, explain to us what that is. You basically just drop a rope with, like, a weight on it down into the bay to figure out how deep it is. And depending on how deep it is, that, you know, you know whether you can bring your larger ship into the bay or not. Yes. Without running uh, aground. Ships in this era had to extend for many meters below the water because of physics. You need a, a counterweight down in the water. Otherwise, you're going to capsize uh and a really great way to sink the ship is just be sailing along your uh your your merry way and then you just hear uh the worst groaning and scraping noise possible underneath you and everything goes wrong yeah so you know they're gonna drop their anchor and but while on their mission they were captured by a spanish patrol Honeyman sent another three men to attempt to negotiate the release of the crew, but they got captured too. Honeyman then decides to depart the area and sail for Portuguese-controlled Brazil. I guess saying good luck to those eight guys. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Meanwhile, on May 27th, Commodore Popham, having received zero intelligence from HMS Lido, which, remember, was supposed to be the scout ship, decides to embark upon the frigate HMS Narcissus and personally reconteer the river plate ahead of the... Re he was on the HMS Narcissus? Yes. <laughs> the the British really like naming ships after uh, mytho Greek mythology. This is, this is some A-tier writing right here. Like, honestly, God... No notes. Narcissus reached the mouth of the river on June the 7th and captured a merchant ship the following day. 
Aboard this ship was a Scottish sailor who agreed to help Popham navigate the tricky waters of the River Plate and provide him with two key bits of intelligence. The first was that Buenos Aires was essentially unguarded. The second was that a large shipment of silver and gold had recently arrived in the unguarded Buenos Aires. So as it turns out, the sailor's report of Buenos Aires being undefended was pretty much completely accurate. The poor state of the capital city's defenses were due to a confluence of factors. The most immediate factor was that the bulk of the garrison had been sent to Montevideo the previous year. When news reached the Spanish viceroy, Rafael de Sombramonte, that a large British fleet was taking on supplies in Brazil, he feared that their target was the River Plate. If they were to attack the area, he decided that Montevideo would be their first target. Because Montevideo is along the northern banks of the river and it's closer to its mouth, and it's a well-fortified position with a deep harbor capable of holding a good amount of ships. Compounding their woes, the Spanish simply did not have enough soldiers in the area to defend both Buenos Aires and Montevideo. The Spanish government had long neglected to increase the defenses of the colony due to the cost involved in doing so. While troops were allocated to South America, were mostly stationed closer to Peru, where local Indian rebellions had occurred during the previous decades. And just to, like, kind of clear things up, it, it takes, like, days for these ships to get from Buenos Aires to Montevideo. Yes. Like, this is a mad... This is a... When we, we say this is, like, a bay, you, you may be, like, picturing something smaller, but no, this is huge. Like, you yeah. can't... Pro you probably can't see one end of it from the other. Like... Yeah, now this is very big and closer, and, like, when you get close into it, there are a lot of sandbanks just under the water. So yes. while it looks like you don't see many islands, it's actually very dangerous to sail in. You have to know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, in theory, the Viceroy should have been able to rely on militia to aid the defense of the colony. In reality, though, the Spanish-born administrators had purposely kept local militia forces weak out of a distrust of the locally-born Criollo and mixed-race population. As I know, Criollo is the Spanish word where Creole comes from. In this case, it means ethnically Spanish people born, born in the colonies. Born in the colonies, yeah. 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 Now, this was especially true once radical sentiment began to spread across the region in the wake of the American and French revolutions. Uh, back in this day, they believed that, like, the, you know, if you take a Spaniard and you... you uh, they're born like outside of Spain. It's because it's the wrong soil. They're like slightly racially lesser. It's just, it's yeah, just the most absolute, just like making shit up on the fly. <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, like yeah. As, as no, not like the the racial demographics. Cause they don't really get much into it um, later. Um, you know, the administrators are Spanish born, but like a lot of like the local elites and middle class are these Criollo who are, you know, native-born Spaniards. You also have people of mixed Spanish and native ancestry, and you have some slaves. This is not a big slave region, because you don't have, like, the really big plantations, but you do have domestic slaves. Charming. Now, on paper, Sobermonte could call upon around 4,000 militia soldiers, but only half of those were actually available, and most of them lacked sufficient arms, ammunition, and training. Finally, Sobermonte simply did not believe that the British invasion was likely. Once he had heard about the fall of Cape Colony, he correctly assumed that South Africa had been the target of the fleet that had stopped in Brazil, and incorrectly assumed that said fleet was now of no immediate threat to the River Plate. HMS Leda's bungling had provided the Spanish with a warning of a potential invasion, but Sobermonte simply assumed that a single British ship was most likely just involved with smuggling or privateering. When the patrol boat spotted a fleet of mysterious ships near the entrance of the River Plate, Sobermonte again claimed that this enemy fleet was nothing more than a bunch of smugglers. The British fleet, meanwhile, was mostly waiting just outside of the River Plate. On June 13th, Popham and his subordinates held a council to decide on their course of action. 
Poppen advocated for attacking Buenos Aires, as it was the political center of the area and would be easier to take. Beresford advocated for attacking Montevideo, since while it was better defended, once conquered, it would be easier to defend from a Spanish counterattack, and its deepwater port would allow for better coordination between ground and naval forces. In the end, Bopham's argument won out, likely in part due to the prospect of capturing the gold and silver present in Buenos Aires. On June 16th, the British fleet entered the River Plate. The three largest warships were left near the mouth to form a blockade, as taking them into shallower waters would have been too risky. So we are necessarily leaving the good big guns behind. The rest of the fleet proceeded slowly towards Buenos Aires, taking care to avoid the numerous sandbanks that made navigating the estuary a challenge. The British finally reached the vicinity of Buenos Aires by the morning of June 24th. So, like, they entered the plate on the 16th, and they get to Buenos Aires on the 24th, if that just gives you some idea of how big this place is. Now, they are going slowly and carefully, though. A small British recon force attempting a landing was repulsed by a local garrison under the command of one of Supermonte's subordinates, Captain Santiago de Liniers. Liniers sent news that he had repulsed a smuggling operation to Supermonte, who was pleased by the vindication of his assessments of the supposed British threat. This hope would be short-lived, however, as that night the full British fleet was finally spotted dropping anchor just off Kilmes, near the outskirts of Buenos Aires. The British made their landing the following day, with cannon fire from the ships providing cover for Brevard's men as they rowed towards the shore. The British were able to successfully establish a perimeter by the night, and on the day of the 26th, they began their advance. The Spanish attempted to halt the British by destroying the bridges over the Matanza River, but British soldiers were able to construct a pontoon bridge under the cover of cannon fire on the 27th. So, you know, here we see the, like, lack of guns and munitions of the militiamen and whatnot, like, really being a factor. Yeah, yeah, like, there were reports that, like, like, one of the Spanish militiamen, like, said that he only had four rounds in total <laughs> to use, so... Yeah, they're, they're not very well equipped. Yeah, so the British can use their range superiority to and suppressing fire, shall we say, um, to give them the space to cross all this. Beresford sent an envoy to the city requesting a surrender. By that point, Sobermonte had packed up as much of the city's treasury as possible and fled to the north. He had left his officers with instructions to surrender to the British, which they did. By the morning of the 28th, the Union flag was flying over the fort at the center of Buenos Aires. In just a few days, a single British regiment had managed to capture the capital of Spain's largest colony. Commodore Poppin, who was still aboard HMS Narcissus, was delighted by the success of his plan. Why is this uh, in our show, Jay? So far, this is just all coming up daisies. Like, this guy's got a good track record. He's got a whole capital city. He's got some money. What could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> now, to say that the population of Buenos Aires took the surrender of their city poorly would be an understatement. The majority of Spanish forces had yet to even engage in battle with the British, and many of them had wanted to keep up the fight. Large mobs had also gathered in the city, ready to defend it from the invaders. Sobermonte's flight was seen as an act of sheer cowardice, and while the remaining Spanish officers were able to prevent the mob from taking action, some British officers feared that an uprising was imminent. Seemingly contrary to these fears, though, tensions in the city began to settle down after a few days of British occupation. The British had promised to respect local property and religion, and were generally abiding by that promise. Beresford and Popham began making outreaches to members of the local elite in an effort to win their support. British officers dined with the wealthy residents of the city, and many of the locals even agreed to swear oaths of loyalty to the British. The promises of being greeted by the locals as liberators seemed to be coming true. 
In reality, though, things were quickly turning against the British. Opposition to British rule was brought about by various factors. Many locals were motivated primarily by a sense of patriotism, either for Spain or for their city, others by loyalism to the Spanish king, and a lot of them just by the dislike of being ruled by English Protestants. The merchant class feared that free trade meant losing out to British competition. And finally, while some of the Criollos initially viewed the expulsion of the Viceroy as a positive development on the path to independence, they now feared that the British were simply setting themselves up as the new masters of the River Plate. Criollo fears were compounded by the greed of the British occupiers. The British did remain true to their word in respecting the property of local residents. Public money that had been collected through taxes, tariffs, customs, and other means, however, was quickly confiscated by the British, and it was soon discovered by their soldiers that Silvermonte had been forced to abandon much of the city's treasury during his flight from the capital. A portion of this money was split between Popham, Breakfast, and Baird, with the remainder being sent back to England. Needless to say, most of the residents of Buenos Aires were not pleased to see their taxpayer money being shifted up in what was described by some as an act of almost Elizabethan piracy. Resistance to British rule was initially led by two local officials by the name of Philippe de Centenoc and Geraldo Esteban Locke. Sintanak and Locke had officially declared their support for the British and thus were in position to garner intelligence on British strength and positions. They quickly sent this intelligence to Montevideo, which was still in Spanish hands. They also set about gaining supporters. Allies included the city's bishop and many of its wealthiest merchants. Military planning for the resistance was soon delegated to Captain Santiago de Liniers, who set about raising a militia army outside of the city. Many of the Spanish soldiers who had officially surrendered and sworn oaths to the British began disappearing into the countryside. By the end of July, the streets of Buenos Aires were becoming increasingly devoid of activity, and the British realized that an uprising was imminent. Linears gathered his forces on the opposite side of the river plate before crossing over to land just north of Buenos Aires on August the 4th. Stormy weather prevented the British ships from intervening in Linears' crossing. Linears had around 1,400 men in total, a combination of militia volunteers and soldiers from Montevideo. British morale in Buenos Aires dropped. Not only was it clear that an attack from Linears was imminent, but mobs began to form within the city itself, forcing the British to consolidate their men near the fortress. The weather was decidedly poor, with frequent thunderstorms pummeling the capital and making it hard for the fleet to do anything. Many of the soldiers began to resent Commodore Popham, who remained safely aboard his ship anchored in the middle of the river. In their mind, Popham and the rest of the Navy only cared about their prize money. So, remember, this is the difficulty in defending this place, because, you know, you could hole up in a fortress and defend that point, but you've also got the ships. Yeah. And I'm imagining the route from the docks to the fortress is not exactly the most efficient thing in the world. Um, and this is kind of this is gonna turn into a fucking nightmare. Yeah. And this fortress is just like it's in like the center of the city. Um, this is not like a walled city. So even if you hold the fortress, uh, enemy force can hold like all the buildings surrounding it. Yeah, and if you wanted to get get to the ships, you would have to go through the now very uh, ornery city to do so. Yeah. So Lanier's begins his attack on the 9th. The British did not have nearly enough men to defend the perimeter of the city and were thus forced to pull back to the center. This allowed Lanier's to surround the British and advance on all sides. A series of intense urban fighting ensued, with Spanish forces quickly occupying rooftops and firing down on British soldiers. Uh, one of the things that people note about this battle is that Spanish architecture would often have like raised, almost like a fence or a crenellation along rooftops, along the perimeter of a rooftop which would be very good if you're a soldier, you know, to just, you know, crouch behind and use his cover and fire down into the streets. 
Now, Lanier's by this point has around 2,500 men, whilst Beresford has around like 900 to 1,000. Seeing that the situation, though, is increasingly becoming hopeless, Beresford agrees to surrender on the 14th. The British were granted generous terms, with Lanier's promising that he would allow them to sail back to England as soon as Pompham had prepared transportation for them. This promise is not upheld by Sentinok and Locke, who preferred to keep the British prisoners as a form of leverage to use if the British attempted to retake the city. Plus those eight guys they left, like, yeah. a while back. Yeah. By the way, whatever happened to that scout ship? Like, is it back with the main force? or? Yeah, so it'll go up to Brazil, and then it'll return, like, during this, and then they'll rejoin Popham's fleet, and it's, it, it's there, kind of. Yeah, so instead, they had the prisoners taken to the interior of the colony. Meanwhile, Popham is still with his fleet in the river. He decided to use his ships to go and blockade Montevideo in an attempt to force a release of the British prisoners. He was also waiting for reinforcements, having sent a request to General Baird in the Cape Colony a few weeks earlier. Now, Baird had initially been lukewarm about the idea of conquering the River Plate, but he was willing to spare reinforcements to Popham upon receiving news of Popham's success in Buenos Aires. You know, this is before, obviously, he knows that it has now uh, failed. So these forces arrive in October, well after the British had been expelled from the city, which means that instead of going to Buenos Aires, they joined Popham off of Montevideo. Popham initially wanted to take Montevideo by force, but the British soon determined that the city was too well fortified. Unlike Buenos Aires, Montevideo is a walled city. So instead, they set their sights on a smaller town known as Maldonado, which they were able to quickly capture. While in Buenos Aires, the British had largely respected the local residents, the residents of Maldonado would not be so fortunate. British soldiers and sailors thoroughly sacked the town, stealing anything they could find and abusing the residents. While the British had won a minor victory, their supply situation soon began to grow dire. The fleet was quickly running out of food, and Maldonado had not provided much in the way of relief. British soldiers went on raids into the countryside trying to steal grain and livestock, but the Spanish soon began to attack these raids and, you know, drive off all the livestock from the surrounding country. By early December, the situation for the British was looking increasingly bleak, when new ships were spotted arriving off of Maldonado. These ships were not from the Cape, but from Britain itself. Cavalry's here, boys. It's fine. So news of Beresford's capture of Buenos Aires had reached England on September the 12th, almost a month after the city had fallen back into Spanish hands. The reaction was one of immediate jubilation. Beresford and Poppin were celebrated as heroes by the press, and the crew of HMS Narcissus, which had sailed to Britain carrying a portion of the city's treasures, were met with cheering crowds. British merchants loaded up ships full of goods to be sold in Buenos Aires. Members of the cabinet met to discuss the proposal of opening up the River Plate to free trade amongst all nations, though that notion was quickly put aside in favor of a protectionist system favoring British commerce. But yeah, not everyone in Britain was happy with Bob's expedition, however. Uh, Viscount Grey, the first lord of the Admiralty, called Popham's decision to abandon the Cape against explicit orders a reprehensible act and said to punish him for it. And then the decision was made to remove Popham from command but maintain his conquests. Blame always travels down, credit always travels up. Rear Admiral Charles Sterling was selected as Popham's replacement and dispatched with a fleet to the River Plate. This fleet was accompanied by around 3,000 soldiers under the command of General Samuel... Ockmuddy? I don't know. That's how I heard it. Ockmuddy. <laughs> yep. I'm such an 11-year-old. Sent to support the occupation of the River Plate. It was these ships that began to arrive off Malnano in December of 1806. 
Now, upon entering the River Plate, Admiral Sterling immediately removed Popham from command. Popham was reluctant to return to England, but was eventually forced to do so, and hopefully get court-martialed. Sterling and Ogmoney weren't aware that Buenos Aires had fallen to the British when they departed England, and were thus now tasked with deciding on the next course of action. Sterling held doubts of the whole idea of trying to conquer the River Plate, but his orders were to support British forces in the area, and the British still did have troops on the ground. As a result, Sterling and Ogmoney decided to capture Montevideo and establish it as a base of operations. So the British are now in for a penny, in for a pound. Yep. Now, Ahmadi's troops landed near Montevideo in January of 1807. The general, who was a loyalist New Yorker who had been with the British since the American Revolution, was viewed as one of the most competent officers in the British Army. And remember, this is an army where most people just buy their commissions. And, like, Ahmadi had money, but for a colonial, you know, for, for an American, basically, to make their way up to this ranks was pretty impressive. Um... So unlike Buenos Aires, Montevideo was well defended, possessing a wall that ran the perimeter of the city. The governor of the city had around 5,000 men at his disposal, meaning that the British were outnumbered. Rather than conduct a long siege, the British decided to bombard the walls with the cannons aboard their ships and on the ground. By February 3rd, they had opened a breach in the wall and Ahmadi began his assault. While the British were outnumbered, their soldiers were far better trained than the defenders, and they're able to quickly advance into Montevideo. After a day of fierce combat, the governor agrees to surrender to the British. Unlike in Maldonado, the looting of Montevideo was kept to a minimum due to the discipline imposed by Ahmadi. The Battle of Montevideo was followed by a lull in the fighting. Both sides held a key city along the River Plate, the Spanish in Buenos Aires and the British in Montevideo, and they're both roughly equal in terms of overall strength. Neither side had a clear advantage over the other. In Buenos Aires, the remnants of the city's government met to decide on the best course of action, and they determined that a new viceroy was necessary. Viceroy Sobremonte had stated his desire to return to the city, but the locals decided to strip him of his position and proclaim Lanieris as their new viceroy. Now in overall command, Lanier set about strengthening the defenses of the city and drafting all able-bodied male residents, including Criollos, men of mixed ancestry, and even slaves, into his army. As a brief note, Lanier's being declared viceroy is a big deal because viceroys aren't declared by the locals. They are appointed by the king. This is the yeah. first time, you know, the people are like, no, we are picking our, our own viceroy. And viceroys have basically supreme authority in these colonies. They are yes. the law. Meanwhile, in Montevideo, the British forces were met with another round of reinforcements sent from Britain. Accompanying these reinforcements was General John Whitelock, who had been appointed by the government as the overall commander-in-chief of all British forces in the River Plate. Whitelock was a peculiar choice for this command. He had only seen battle once before, but what he lacked in experience, he made up for with connections. He was the son of a prominent lord, had married into the family of the deputy secretary of war, and was personal friends with future King George IV. Whitelock's orders were to attack Buenos Aires if he thought that he had enough men to do so, and to you know, use his great military judgment to make that decision. By this point, both sides had around 9,000 soldiers. Whitelock viewed his forces as efficient date city and began an attack on July 1st. The second attack on Buenos Aires initially went well for the British. They were able to defeat a force led by Lanier's that attempted to confront them on the outskirts of the capital, sending the new viceroy into a retreat. At this point, Whitelock stopped to demand the surrender of Buenos Aires, which the Spanish refused. On July 4th, the British resumed their push into Buenos Aires. British columns initially made some progress, but were quickly slowed by the intense nature of the combat. Spanish troops set up positions in buildings and along rooftops, forcing the British to fight for each building as they advanced. The first day of combat alone saw the British take 
around a thousand casualties, more than ten percent of their forces. Yeah, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of bayoneting going on. <laughs> now, White Lock's plan was flawed for a single clear reason. His goal was to get his men into the fort in the center of Buenos Aires, which, after much effort, they were able to accomplish. This, however, left the Spanish free to occupy the rest of the city and surround the now-trapped British force. The British had attempted to maintain a corridor reaching the perimeter of the city, but Linares was able to close this off with a counterattack. By July 7th, the British were essentially stuck inside Buenos Aires. The layout of the city meant that they could not easily be supported by their fleet, and Linares was able to bring in his own artillery into the city to bombard the fort. Seeing no other options, Whitelock agreed to ceasefire with Linares on July 9th. After a period of negotiation, the two commanders concluded the truce by which both sides would return all prisoners taken during the campaign, and the British would be allowed to peacefully evacuate Buenos Aires, Montevideo, and all other land taken during the operation. That is very generous on the part of the Spanish and the locals. Yeah, um, they... they they do get pretty good terms. Um, White Walk's mishandling of the campaign and his eventual surrender enraged his subordinates. Aquamide stated his desire to see him executed for incompetence, while his men expressed their disgust at being defeated by predominantly militia forces. By September 1807, all British forces had departed the River Plate for England. Upon arrival in England, General Whitelock was indeed given a court-martial and declared unfit for service. Popham avoided this fate and was merely reprimanded for disobedience. Britain's defeat was seen as an embarrassment by the government, and by 1808, a new exhibition was authorized for an invasion of the Rio de la Plata under the command of a certain General Arthur Wellesley. These preparations were interrupted by news coming from the continent. In March of that year, Napoleon Bonaparte deposed the Spanish king and installed his own brother on the throne. The Spanish people and army had risen up in open rebellion, and Wellesley's expedition would be launched. But instead of invading the River Plate, they now had a new objective, aiding the people they were preparing to fight in the defense of their country. Okay, that's pretty fun. <laughs> i give it to you, Jay. That's a pretty fun story. Yeah, so that's the uh, the invasions of the River Plate. Now, like you said, outside of South America, very few people know about this. The British generally don't like talking about their elves. Um, the fact that the Peninsular War is right after this, you know, overshadows this whole affair. Um, inside South America, this will be very important because, as we mentioned, the you know the people of Buenos Aires had picked their own viceroy, and furthermore. You know, the people of the plate had defended their homeland against a major European power with basically no assistance from Spain. And this, you know, made a lot of people think, you know, we really don't need, you know, the Spanish. You know, the Spanish government back in, in, in Madrid isn't doing anything for us. Um, you know, this doesn't immediately lead to a revolution or rebellion or anything. But a few years later, in 1810, you have uh, the start of a rebellion in Argentina, which will eventually lead to Argentina declaring independence, and that will spark off a whole bunch of independence campaigns across the area. So while you know, this is not a very well-known war campaign, it is a pretty important one, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. No, I mean, it was fun. You know, I love a, a British L, and it's fascinating how so much of this period was um, just just dudes just sort of going off on little adventures because ah, it's right over there. Let's yeah. go get it. <laughs> um, in yeah. America, this was called, uh, I, I believe, uh, the the term was filibustering. Uh, before filibustering yeah. became the the lame political thing, that <laughs> you would just like go out and like you know casually conquer a nation over the weekend because you were a you know a tough 
uh, American man uh, from 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 the the New West. You your Bowie knife and whatnot. Yeah. Um. And obviously, it was in aggregate successful. Uh, you know, the British will co- conquer much of the world. You know, many peoples will be blighted with their existence. But it's good to know sometimes they just get their shit kicked in. And <laughs> but it, it is just amazing how like it was very normal. For, I, not. It wasn't obscenely out of the ordinary that, like, after the British sent their troops to do one thing, the commanding officers were been like, well, now we're going to take the military and do a totally different yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, just completely just go off on his own and attack, you know, a completely different country in a completely different colony across an ocean. I mean, it's just, it's just like if U.S. troops in Afghanistan just decided to invade Pakistan before shits and gigs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Not that I would be particularly surprised if that briefly happened. All right. Well, this has uh, been... Uh, uh, f- Sorry, my brain's kind of fried. I'm I'm very hungry. Uh, I need to go eat dinner. And uh, yeah, so this is a No One Is Competent podcast. Uh, hey, big thing I forgot at the beginning is we're currently trying to get the show to um, a 10 reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts and 1,000 subscribers on our YouTube channel. And if we do that, you will uh, unlock... Uh, have an an episode with utterly slammered Azalea. Uh, so, and I, I promise that will be a very, very funny. Uh, Jay can attest to this. Uh, he, he's, he's heard me be um, pissed drunk a few times. Uh, Jay, testify to my uh, intoxicated comedy skill. Uh, it's quite enjoyable. I, I do... Uh like some of the things you come up with when intoxicated that's honestly the the nicest and most like complimentary thing jay's ever said about me anyway i am azalea that is jahari's we are the no one is competent podcast our music is done by the legendary sam bryce and we hope you're having a brilliant summer wherever you are take care of yourself y'all be good